0: And I do bring you all greetings from St. Andrew's Cathedral in Sydney, uh, from our Archbishop Kanishka, and really the whole Diocese of Sydney, uh, from Moore College and its principal, who's a member of the Cathedral Congregation, Paul's alma mater for his theology. Uh, And I just want to uh, say that uh, we've really only met this weekend, but Paul and Shona, uh, they really embody uh, words that John wrote in his third epistle we ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth and I'm sure that those of you who have known them for a long time realize this is by no means the first time uh, that they've shown such gospel hospitality to people from the other side of the globe it is a privilege to be with you today let's pray Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. So turn to us and have mercy, as you always do, to those who love your name. Direct our footsteps according to your word. Amen. Now listen, I'll be honest as a preacher. I know that most people forget most content of most sermons we ever hear. But I'm excited to share with you today on a gospel passage that changed my life when I first heard it preached over 30 years ago. It was my first year at Theological College, Moore College in Sydney. Aged just 21 I was. I'd come from a Bible-based church, but not one strong in its teaching. Certainly not a sermon note-taking church. That day... I skipped my first lecture, ran home to my little room in college and wrote down every word I could remember from that sermon. What was so memorable about that sermon? It told me that Jesus had to die. Yeah, there's a fair chance you already knew that for yourself, right? A- at least, you know, that's what they typically say here at church. You know, mind you, my wife tells me that the young kids in their kindergarten class in the voluntary religious education classes in Australian public schools today are totally shocked by the first time they hear how Jesus' life ended. But when I heard that sermon on Mark 8, I already believed Jesus died for my sins. I was already at theological college. But when I left chapel that day, It was like emerging from the fog into the brilliant sunshine. Why so? Well, of course, from a Christian point of view, there can be no more important topic of conversation than who is Jesus and why did he die? And so the first question this passage answers is who is Jesus? That's what Jesus himself was asking in Mark 8 and verse 27 Who do people say I am? Conducting an opinion poll via his disciples. What are the people saying outside the town hall? In the suburbs? Down by the lake? Up in the hill country? Jesus was never afraid to hear people's ideas. And in verse 28, the answers came. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. John the Baptist, maybe back from the dead or maybe he was just kind of channeling the spirit the ethos of the baptist others say no he's elijah one of the prophets in other words they said jesus might be a holy man he points the way to god like those old testament great ones a signpost but not the destination jesus was interested in their opinions. But he didn't think all opinions are equal. That's why verse 29, he says, but he wanted to see if his disciples knew any better. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Disciples had a couple of years to get to know him up close and Peter's answer is a good one. Jesus is the Messiah. In some other translations, it says, Christ. Uh, Christ in the New Testament, Greek, uh, Messiah in the Aramaic, uh, which they were almost certainly speaking. Now, 30 years ago when I heard this sermon, it was pointed out that when we hear Christ, we think it's his surname, Jesus Christ, uh, found under sea in the Nazareth phone book. 30 years later, we don't even have phone books anymore. But his surname wasn't christ or messiah because it was his title and peter knew that messiah meant anointed one they used to anoint new kings pouring oil over the head as the sign of being chosen for the job when a queen elizabeth was crowned 1953 she was anointed by the archbishop of canterbury but by the way it was a blend of orange roses cinnamon musk and ambergris essential oils. Uh, King Charles' coronation oil was consecrated in Jerusalem a couple of months back, olive oil pressed just outside Bethlehem and with more of those essential oils. Whether or not you have big hopes for King Charles, the Old Testament had big hopes for a future Messiah. God's anointed king would descend from the dynasty of David, Israel's greatest king. And this king was designated as son of God. And so, in summary, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ equals God's king, Jesus. And that's why Peter's answer was so critical. The crowd thought Jesus was just a signpost. Peter knows Jesus is the destination. Contrary to the Muslim evangelists uh, outside the cathedral I serve, next to the town hall, the public square in Sydney, all sorts of evangelists for all sorts of causes. Contrary to those Muslim evangelists, Jesus is not just a prophet, but is himself God's king and son. Now, notice this occurs, verse 27, in Caesarea Philippi. The title tells you it's a city dedicated to the Roman Caesar. That is the emperor, the reigning superpower. And the Romans thought Caesar was Lord of all. But Peter effectively says, no, Jesus is Lord of all. C.S. Lewis famously said, didn't he, that you can't just take Jesus as a good man or a prophet. By his own words, recorded in these primary documents of history, Jesus is far more than a prophet. And so he's either the liar or the lunatic or the Lord. To pretend there's any in between would be to ignore the evidence and to diminish Jesus in an unacceptable way. Well, then, if that's true, verse 30 is a big surprise. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why does Jesus say to stay quiet? It can't be that Peter's just made a mistake. The whole book of Mark was introduced in its title, chapter 1, verse 1, as the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. So this has got to be a big tick for Peter. But so many narrow ideas got attached to the Messiah title. Oh yes, the Old Testament promised the Messiah would re-establish God's rule, not just in Israel, but over the whole world. And since Israel was now a defeated nation, With its territory occupied by the Romans in the name of their Caesar, many people expected the Messiah would rescue Israel from that disaster and beat up their enemies. The Messiah would be a military superpower. It's, I think, a bit like the word evangelical in America. Evangelical used to mean gospel person, Bible and cross at the center. Now people think it means right-wing, political, conservative, religious, republican. And if you move to America, some of you might think, not so fast, please, with applying that title to me. So that leads to the second point, what the Messiah identity means. Jesus wanted to correct their ideas before people jumped to the wrong conclusion. He asked them to keep quiet, to avoid the wrong expectations of a big coming fight with Rome. We're about to discover the ways of King Jesus are not the weapons of this world. So Jesus is the Messiah, but what does it mean for Jesus? Not politics, not military might. And this is what he starts to help them understand from verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And by the way, a son of man was his preferred way to speak of himself. It was, it was kind of a, a modesty tactic to talk about himself in the third person, but, but with a veiled Old Testament hint for the title was used of significant figures in Ezekiel. And especially in Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man was led into the presence of God, the ancient of days, to receive his power and authority. But what Jesus explains here is that as son of man, he must suffer and be rejected. And that's not what they expected. And look at that little word must. It's not might suffer, could suffer, but must. Must suffer. Must be killed. In the original language, it's a very emphatic little word. It means that it was an immovable part of God's plan. Plenty of us think we must get married. We must have a successful career. We must travel. But actually, of course, those are wants, not absolute needs or musts, but the Bible's Jesus must die. And this is what the disciples just didn't get. Rejection's not what you want for your king. Not when so many Israelites wanted their Messiah to smash the pagan Roman overlords and make Israel free again. Why must the Messiah die? Well, Jesus doesn't explain here just yet. First, they've just got to start grasping the bare fact. But a little later, chapter 10 and verse 45, he says he will give his life as a ransom for many. His death was the price given to ransom to buy many people back from death and judgement. One of the great privileges of my life was that one of my daughters uh, got to come with me to the GAFCON conference in Rwanda. They wanted some young Anglicans as well. (laughs) Uh, Because she works for Anglican Aid Sydney, she was then visiting some aid projects on the ground. And one of them was within one of the most unstable countries in Africa, neighbouring nearby. Is just what every mother wants to hear on her daughter's travel plans. Now, look, the preparations were well made. In fact, Anglican Aid sent her to HEAT training. That's hostile environment awareness training, where they teach you to recognize different kinds of machine guns and how to staunch uh, trauma wounds. And yeah. At the back of a parent's mind is what, what if, what if she is kidnapped? Because You hear that people have been taken for ransom in some parts of Africa, often for a political cause. And look, we don't have a whole heap of money, but I I would do anything to raise the ransom for my daughter. In fact, I said I'd sell my house. And uh, I was told to remove that bit out of the Good Friday YouTube stream when I preached, because they said, oh, if anyone sees that, that'll just give them an incentive to track down your daughter. Uh, And then I discovered Anglican A's policy is not to pay ransoms. Uh, I'm, I'm glad she returned from that country safely. And the Bible makes clear there is a price to be paid for ignoring God and breaking his commands. Your life is forfeit for rejecting God. What can you give in exchange for your soul? And the fair thing would be that you pay for your sin and I pay for mine. But Jesus loves us so much, he says he came as the ransom. He paid the penalty. Jesus insisted he must die the death you and I deserve. Now, he says here, death will not be the end. Right now, Jesus also predicts he'll rise again. But at this point, they can't understand he's dying, let alone a resurrection. And so verse 32 says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Look here, Jesus, this suffering business, that's not the way to do it. The Messiah's not supposed to be beaten up. I heard the story of Winston Churchill insisting that he would watch the D-Day invasion against the Nazis close up, just off the French coast from the deck of a destroyer. He wanted to inspire the troops by his presence. And no one in England could dissuade the Prime Minister from that awful risk. Finally, General Eisenhower, the American Supreme Allied Commander, went and had a word to King George, and the king came and said to Churchill that if the Prime Minister was going to risk his life on D-Day, the king felt duty-bound to join him on the deck of that naval vessel. Straight away. Churchill realised he could not risk, he could not risk the king's life and he dropped his plan. And Peter agrees. A king's life should never be risked. But Peter was tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. And I reckon if the other disciples knew what was happening in that moment, they would have kicked Peter in the shins. Leave him alone, Peter. Don't be stupid. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, I have no chance. I'll never be able to stand on judgment day without Jesus in my place. Let us thank God that Jesus did not give in to Peter's advice. In fact, he could not make it any clearer than verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The king telling the captain to remember his rank. Peter was way out of line. And he should fall back in behind Jesus. That's where disciples belong. Following behind Jesus. Not telling him what to do. And friends, what Jesus says here is so heavy. To avoid the cross is satanic. And I say to you this morning any version of christianity that downplays or denies or sidelines the cross is not just a variation of emphasis it's not just another flavor or a bit off center no jesus says it's evil and dangerous and for me coming into college way back in 1990 the last books i'd read were called power healing and power evangelism It's by a man called John Wimber, most of you won't have heard of him, and he was truly a lovely and kind man. But it was pointed out that those books of his said preaching the gospel wasn't really powerful enough by itself in fact if you just preach the gospel you you just wouldn't see that many conversions he said the situation could be enhanced by signs and wonders supernatural words of knowledge or power healings powers and victories which he claimed were on call today and i'd come from that kind of background and back in 1990, hearing this sermon, this passage, I realized Wimba was as well intentioned as Peter and just as guilty of the kind of mistake Peter was making. The complete flip, the complete reversal of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ. Crucified. Stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But the power of God. And Jesus says to you today, if you fail to see that his cross was crucial, absolutely central, then you don't really understand his identity at all. Christ crucified is God's plan so what does it mean for for followers of Jesus well we follow Jesus the way of the cross is our way too verse 34 then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me And notice there's no hiding this, he calls the crowd, everyone he wants to hear this. Not just the 12 apostles, not just the church leaders and keen beans. The way of the cross is for all true Christians. Three things identified there in verse 34. Number one, deny yourself. You are no longer king of your life. Number two, take up your cross. Be willing even to suffer like Jesus. Jesus. You know, at the recent conference in Africa, uh, someone led the most impassioned prayer I think I've heard in my life and there were lots of loud amens for the protection of women and children, for the peace of war-torn Sudan and on it went. But at one point, she claimed that by the authority she said was given to Christians, she believed anyone who'd come to the conference with sickness, or depression could go home with their burdens healed and there were lots of amens to that too and you can understand her concern for those who came from pressured situations weak and heavy laden and yet I could not say amen to that bit of her prayer because she had unintentionally marginalised the way of the cross in the believer's life. In fact, that was the day the principal of Moore College got diagnosed with COVID. Perhaps like with the Apostle Paul, it is sometimes the Lord's will not to take away the thorn in the flesh. Maybe sometimes we need to learn This is 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9 that God's grace is sufficient for you for his power is made perfect in weakness sometimes we must suffer as followers of Christ and so the third part of verse 34 is to follow him not like following someone on Instagram or Twitter, you just press a button, it's as simple as that. You can like some of the things they say, they're pretty pictures and just quietly ignore the things that are less palatable. This is personal commitment to following His lead, His rule of king, wherever you go. Professor William Lane put it this way, those who wish to follow Christ must be prepared to shift the centre of gravity in their lives from a concern for self, to reckless abandon to the will of God the solar system revolves around the Sun not the earth and the Christian life revolves around God's son and not me verses 35 on spell it out language of profit and loss for whoever wants to save their life will lose it whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Professor Lane thinks this speaks here. Jesus foresees the historical situation beyond his own of a church in those early centuries. Harassed by persecution. Their, Their ranks being decimated by sometimes overt pressure, sometimes subtle, exerted by imperial Rome. Jesus had called his own disciples to realize that suffering is not only his destiny, but theirs. And there is an ultimate loss at stake. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We risk rejection by the Son forever if we're ashamed of him, if we refuse to stand up for his words, wherever the pressure points are right now, or if we will not stand for the absolute necessity of the cross. Ed Welch wrote a book with a fascinating title, When People Are Big and God Is Small, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency and the Fear of Man. And I I thought it was a good enough book for our staff team to discuss a while ago. And here's a quote relevant to our passage today. Sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for him. If someone had the power to kill us for our profession of faith I imagine that most Christians would say yes I am a believer in Jesus Christ even if it means death the threat of torture might make people think twice said Welch but I think most Christians would acknowledge Christ however if making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular ignored or criticised, then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. In other words, kill me but don't keep me from being liked or respected. Well I already said that a threat, not so much to my life but to that of my daughter's life, would be very hard. But isn't there a big element of truth in his words? Dear friend, this very day and forevermore, there is nothing any one of you can give in exchange for your soul to redeem it when corrupted by sin and by disloyalty to God. But thanks be to God. Christians know Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many: His righteousness an exchange for our sin. And if there were another way back to the Father, don't you think God would have used it? Think about it. That little word must. God willed the death of his son. And think of the agony Jesus went through. Not just that horrible physical pain, the blood loss, and the crushing suffocation. The Bible teaches he was bearing our sin on the cross, facing God's wrath for things he had not done. And Jesus did it for sinners like us. Do you think God would have allowed it if there was any other way? And so the cross says that Jesus must really love you. And those who love him back must accept the irreplaceable importance of his suffering. And in turn, they must spend themselves in his service. Self-sacrifice for the king of self-sacrifice. Maybe today is the day you've realized just how much God loves you. Maybe you've been coming along, but now you see Jesus is not just a signpost, but the goal of life's journey. I urge you, do not delay it. In becoming a Christian and we've seen here it won't mean life is always easy but it is an entry into a secure future in the knowledge you're at peace with God this morning you don't know everything there is to know about him but you know he loves you enough to let his son die for you and so you can trust him with the unknown put your trust in him hand your life over Stop delaying and say yes to Jesus. And the way you can do it is echoing a prayer like this that I'll pray in your heart to God. Shall we bow our heads? Dear God, thank you for Jesus and his love. Thank you that he loved me. Even though I've done so much wrong, I've rejected you before, but now I want to be your friend. So thank you that Jesus died for me, to ransom my soul from judgment. And now I want to live your way. Help me to deny myself and follow Jesus. In the name of Christ, i